from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow, we're coming to you from the Wharton School, of course. Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto Locust Walk, the famed University of Pennsylvania Locust Walk on a crisp, appropriately cool January morning. Morning, fellas. How are you guys doing? Excellent. How doing, are you doing great. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Audie Weiner will be in here eventually. Eric Bradlow will be out of here eventually. We're going to do a little baton, a little handoff here. You guys can be in here. Jump in anytime you'd like. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or hit us up on email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Matt Datz will take your emails. He will pass them along either in the week, if you're hearing a replay, or during the show. You can also follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics and our guests. Speaking of guests, we have guests, two guests. Kind of a normal show in that respect. One at the bottom of this hour. Another at the top of the next hour. Football all. We've got we've got to soak it for what we can, guys. It's yeah. about the long, cold winters in front of us. We've got to get left. a little bit more football before it goes away. You know, that 15 minutes before we start talking about the NFL draft. It's a really That's right. cold, That's a right. cold, hard 15 minutes. Well, I, I'm going to promise you guys, this year, this is the year where um, I start getting excited about hockey and paying attention yeah. more, like right after the Super Bowl, basically. That's yeah. my mission. It's like a fix, right? Because you, you, know, you lose your I mean, obviously, by, by, by March or April, we're all kind of getting excited about the playoffs, both in the NBA and NHL. I'm just going to start that a little early this year, yeah, try and I, get myself through February. You know, I, I, you know Shane, I, I, I've been frustrated in recent years with the seeming coin-tossed nature of the NHL. You, the team has this mm-hmm. great regular season. And then it just kind of doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, no, I mean at the play, the playoffs are very random, and I mean, you, I mean, uh, at this point, you kind of have to embrace that. I think. I mean, it's an inherent part of the sport, and I, I mean, you know, then, as opposed to the kind of super predictability of a lot of recent NBA playoffs, yeah, I actually almost prefer it. But it, it is for you. Kind of almost have to kind of follow the sport during the regular season, just for kind of the the. The stories within the regular season or something like that. It, I, it, I it is something just that... Just don't get too locked into exactly. the caps exactly. or whatever. That's you right. know, speaking of randomness or not randomness, what do you think about how often we get these top seeds into the Super Bowl? This is something like the seventh or eighth year where both teams in the Super Bowl were teams that got buys, first week buys, so they were either a one yeah. or a two seed. Obviously, those buys confer an advantage... Because they play one less game, it's a huge yeah. advantage. But also, and they the go one to, seed is at home. That's which right. Is and also home field a huge. advantage. That's right. Uh, and the two seed gets the divisional yeah. game at home. But also, they identify on average the best teams, and so it's hard to separate the advantage from the buy versus the quality of the team that gets those buys. Well, I think what's interesting about the two teams in the Super Bowl this year is that people forget the Forty ers were four and twelve last season. No, it's amazing. So, yeah. you know, people want to say, well, Jimmy Garoppolo, when, remember, he was out a lot of last season. But I don't care who you add back. To go from 4-12 and 12 
to the number one seed in the NFC. And by the way, it's not like we th- we're not sure who's going to win the Super Bowl. I think it's a very close game. The NFC is stacked. And to be the number one seed in the NFC this year was no easy task. No, I, I, I mean know. Seattle I... was thirteen and four, or thirteen or whatever, twelve and four in the five seed. I'm just commenting. If you look at the win loss record, it was the I think it was the best record of any wild card team I, that I ever know, played. But are we overweighting the one loss record? Because who, who else was who else do you think was really strong in NFC? The the Saints I think were the number two team by my most power rankings. Yeah, and I think there's a pretty good gap after that. I mean the the Packers are you know the poster child now for overperforming their actual quality they right. they're they're expected yeah. based on point differential alone their expected wins was something like nine and a half so they overperformed their win to, expected wins by three and a half which is really big in football they won all these close games and people say well that's because they have Aaron Rodgers well it turns out it's mostly not sustainable mostly it's chance when you win all these close games so it feels it feels to me a little bit like it, they were bunched together, Eric, but I don't know how strong they were necessarily. I, maybe that's fair enough, but I mean, still, I think we'd all agree going from four and twelve to being in the Super you know, Bowl I, is a remarkable. And, and, and I mean, feat. I, I do think the AFC had a couple really, really good teams, and the drop off was relatively yeah, dramatic yeah, after yeah, that, right? Um, so I don't know how exactly. I mean, like if you're kind of talking about like a kind of a path through the playoffs to the Super Bowl, I don't know which one would have been a more difficult kind yeah. of journey, right? Especially because uh, the Ravens got I mean, I, I do certainly think, I mean, unambiguously, we can say as far as getting in the playoffs, the wild card in, in the NFC was much more, I mean, was basically, you know, right over by like, you know, halfway through the season, we kind of knew that. Like well, a lot I, of teams were eliminated from the playoff contention earlier in the NFC. Well, do you ever remember the following happened? So we would agree that maybe the two other best teams in the AFC, besides the Chiefs, were the Patriots and the Ravens during the regular season. And they didn't have to play either of them. We yeah. talk about the yeah. NFC. You just talked about the Saints. The 49ers didn't play the Saints. That's right. That's so right. it's interesting mm-hmm. that the two teams that made the Super Bowl, you could make an easy argument that both of them ended up with an easy path to the Super Bowl thanks to the Titans and the Vikings, etc. They didn't even have to play the tough yeah. teams. Yeah, That's absolutely. True. I, we, one, good morning, Adi. Adi made it in here. I, Dr. Weiner has joined us. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> We're Formal gonna, welcome. We haven't morning. talked Formal about the Hall of Fame Thank you for holding off on big, that. Big, big topic coming up. Yeah. We appreciate it. So, but, but I did Eric, watch the games, by the way. Isn't that a well? We're, we're accustomed feet. to that now. Yes, you're, yeah, you're, you're yes. spoiled us. You're I did. I watched it with, your... with great with great vigor. Actually. <laughs> How do you watch with vigor? How does pay that... attention? You got, you're <laughs> on the edge of your seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're really zoned in. Uh, no, no, really. I was you, zoned even in. the second game. No, I'd lost I lost attention I, I, on the second game. Uh, second no, game actually, I watched the second game um, because I mean. The Packers staged, most people would say there wasn't really a comeback, but their 99.7 probability of losing went to 98.5. Well, there you go. <laughs> but if you think of that, and in fact, there was that deep play that was called uh, pass yeah. interference. Yeah. Correct. And I was wondering if that was if they made that, that would have seen a, a substantial increase in their win probability, because then they would have been very close to scoring again, and they would have been down 34-27 with four minutes left. I mean, yeah. it would still have been a long shot, but it would have been a rather remarkable win yeah. probability yeah. comeback yeah, if not an actual victory. See, see what we get to dwell on? We yeah. don't care about winning. We just care about the distance between your win probability start and end. Well, I tell you what I'm yeah. most interested in is this thing that Eric's pointing out, that San Francisco, how far they've come. And I don't understand the franchise that. enough to know how, what the seeds of that were. Like, what what has the front office done over time? What has ownership done over time? 
where you know wh- how how long has it taken Shanahan to do what he's done? I would like to know more about the evolution of San Francisco over the last few years because for a long time they had what we thought were some you know some open-minded advanced thinkers over there, but it didn't translate into much since the Kaepernick Super Bowl against the Ravens. It's really been a bit of a mess over there. But I mean but, that mess to a certain extent, like. You know, is kind of the substrate by which this team has has well, that's risen what I, up. Right? That's I mean, what I want to know. They've had, do they have like what five first rounders on their defensive line? Well, I was just about to say. So the only thing I can connect that to is obviously John Lynch yeah. is the general manager of the team. He's made it very clear that he was going to build that team like the Buccaneers team that won the Super Bowl. The reason that Buccaneers team won the Super Bowl was because of the extraordinary defensive line that they have. As a matter of fact, I think I read something like on eighty five percent of the plays. The San Francisco 49ers are able to play seven defensive backs. Now, why is that? Mm-hmm. That's because of the damage that that front four can do. They never have to uh, rush the quarterback with blitzes. So their front four, as you said, five yeah. pro bowlers or whatever on their front line or first-round picks, they're doing a huge amount of damage. They can cover the field. I mean, yeah. that's a huge advantage yeah. in the it's NFL. It's interesting that the, the analytics conversation this year has been in, it has been that the defensive backfield matters more for pass defense than does the defensive line. And that's been contentious because the conventional wisdom was that it was line. But the analytics guys are saying, really really in the last 12 months, the analytics guys are saying more important is the backfield. Yeah. And the bad, I mean, the bad, it's not like San Francisco has... Uh, you know, scrubs in the backfield either. So it's a no. little bit tough. I mean, they kind of, you know, they they decide to, like, treat that balance by being really, really good in both. Right. So my observation, my, my own observation, my observation that I've culled from reading other sports analysts is that if you, the conventional wisdom now is if you match an offensive line versus a defensive line, the offensive line better predicts. Is that what happened? Is that played out? Do you believe in that? Is that, where does that come from? I mean, it's actually a wonderful kind of question we've always talked about in sports. If you match up, the, the defense versus an offense, and you take the, the two top, which one wins? I think in baseball, we tend to think that it's pitching at the end of the day that and wins Super Bowls, wins well, World Series. Me, how, how but, do, uh, this how, is what I've been reading, so does, it just makes sense. So say more about that, because the, the, the conventional wisdom that has emerged in recent years, and probably even recent months, is that defense is less predictable in general than is offense. And if that's the case... How, how far does how that far get does that, you that towards might get that you answer? I mean, this might be a great question for our guests later on. But does that, that does that necessarily mean, you tell me, uh, does that necessarily mean that offense yes. line is more important than defense? Well, okay, it means that it doesn't mean it's more important. It means that if you're going to make a forecast, the offensive line forecast is more reliable. Build, but no, but this is retrospective build, versus right? prospective. Think about regression at the mean. We talked about that uh, last week or the week before. If you observe a high okay. defense, me, it's, it's quite possibly uh, uh, an, good. an inadvertent right. good so defense. So let me just, good. I just want to comment for our listeners. The way I'm interpreting what you're saying is if I look backwards and I have historical data and I run, it's, let's say it's even a regression of wins and losses against defensive play and offensive play, I may actually find out that let's say defensive play is more important. However, going forward, since it's not easy to predict, that's right. it therefore doesn't mean that's where you invest when you want to, in the future, try no. to you know, build a team that's going to win. I mean, that's entirely possible, that's, right? That, that's, that's what I want to understand better. So it's one thing for us to say as analysts, because we're sitting over here in the comfort of our offices trying to predict these things. It's one thing to say, well, we like the offensive line stats better because it allows us to build better models. What about the general manager who has to decide who to invest his picks in or who to sign mm-hmm. off a free agency? Is it the same? Do we say the same thing? 
Is it the uh, same exercise? Uh, well, we tend to say to advise with the data. If we can't predict the defensive line, we would say don't invest in it because it's too random. Although you could turn around and say we'll take a lot of shots at it. Yeah, let's just well, let's talk about variance then. So let me just analogize this and bring it back to the original Moneyball. So not many people remember the actual Moneyball book and what what uh, Michael Lewis was describing with Billy Bean. But one of the undercurrents was this exact problem with how do you draft? I mean, who do you draft? for your starting pitcher crew. And what, what Billy Bean said was, I don't have money to spend. I better make picks that are going to turn into something. So he said, pick college players. But, and the reason for that is that high school players are highly variant, variable. So if you have a lot of money and you want to grab lots of shots at high school players, you might get more mm-hmm. value out of them in the long run. And I think that's the analogy here. With the defense, with defense, maybe you need a lot of shots at it because you can't really predict it. But if you only have a little bit limited money or you're down in the draft pick and because you've done well, you might make sure that you invest more in the offensive line rather than defensive mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, an, it's very interesting. Of course, we need to be careful and not confound the predictability of players with the yeah. predictability of a unit because most of what we're talking about this morning yeah, is Yeah, and I unit. mean, that's kind of, this, this is sort of the, when I'm looking ahead, people have been asking me already what, what I sort of think. I mean, A, I think it's a very compelling matchup in the Super. I, I think we've got two amazing teams. I'm, so I'm very excited for that game, but, you know, it's it's you know, to me, it's, it's San Francisco has kind of shown this ability to dominate the line play. You know, that the, 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 both lines, both the defensive and offensive lines. And that, to me, should be fairly predictable about success. It certainly has been so far. And when I look at it, I'm like, okay, well, there's an obvious mismatch here. San Francisco should dominate essentially both the offensive and defensive line. So what does Kansas City have to kind of counterbalance that? Well, they've got the best quarterback in football, well, so and so how, how does that like how does that kind of well, here, <laughs> you know makes fun? Doesn't it? <laughs> how, how, how does that counter? You know, how want, do those two things uh, go up against each other? I want to suggest that the folks at PFF might have something to say about this. They have produced some really interesting research. I suspect some of the stuff that Audie's been reading has been from um, uh, Timo. I may pr- mispronounce your last name wrong, but it's Timo Risk. Timo Risk. Um, he go, his 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 Twitter handle is at pff underscore moo. So he's a great follow on, on, on Twitter, but Timo is one of the data scientists there, and they've been looking at offensive line play, and they've been using survival curves to do it. And it's not just, you know, gratuitous, fancy methodology. A survival curve is a great approach to line play because time is such an important element. If you just looked at sacks or no sacks, you're throwing away a ton of information because does it happen after three seconds? Of course, it's also censored. The idea is that exactly. as soon as the yeah. quarterback releases the ball, you've dropped out of the study. That's what we call the citrus survival curve. So we, the reason you need a survival methodology is because you have these censored data yeah. and there's this time element. And so it allows them to dig into offensive line play and defensive line play. And they're just doing fantastic work on this. So Timo has a couple of articles. He wrote one last month introducing the concept, and then he's written another one. Going into the NFC Championship game, here's this great offensive line on the Packers against this great defensive line on the Niners and what was going to happen. And um, the importance of that offensive line play when you have Rodgers, who's not performing very well if he doesn't have this he doesn't time. have this time. So Brian Burke also has been in this game on survival curves. And it's just a, it's a terrific example of bringing some fundamental statistical methodology to help us gain some insight into very important play in football. But also the way they're going about it, I just want to give them a little more praise because football analytics is so much fun these days. It's advancing like, you know, little by little. And they're writing these articles and say, well, we know this and we don't know that. 
And, you know, a few more months and we'll write another article and we'll push the ball forward a little bit. But it's exactly the way we want kind of knowledge to advance. It's almost like academic work, except that it's happening on a weekly basis instead of, a, you know, a yearly basis with these publications. Yeah, the only thing you have to – this gets back to Shane's earlier point. So you might look at Patrick Mahomes, right, and say, well, maybe he has enough time, doesn't have enough time. The thing that he has – you talk about their advantage – is he has five receivers that will all probably win their matchup. Now, what does that mean? It means he's probably going to throw – you're going to see a lot of screen passes. You're going to see a lot of quick releases and slants and hope that you know their guy might catch the ball five yards from the line of scrimmage and break one for 50. And so that's the advantage, which means when we look at the offensive line of Kansas City, you could make an argument they don't need to be that good in the sense of he's not going to take unnecessary shots down the field that he doesn't have to take. He can throw the ball in the underneath zone. So I'm just saying, I know we've talked about this last week a lot. It's all endogenous, which means who Patrick Mahomes has to throw to can change a lot yeah. about the entire scheme of the offensive line. So I like survival and, curves, and I like understanding how much time someone has to throw, but Kansas, you could make an argument Kansas City doesn't need as much time to yeah, throw. Yeah, and, and, and I think also, like, you know, the the, the all, all this kind of study of, like, how an offensive line does these survival curves, you know, you have to kind of break that down by, you know, the mobility of the quarterback, and I think that's probably part of pushing the ball forward in the future is that, you know, Having, you know, being able to have consistent pressure with four guys when you have Aaron Rodgers back there, who's a great quarterback but not particularly mobile, versus Patrick Mahomes or somebody like Lamar Jackson, it's a very different kind. I'm sure you have to scheme that very differently. So so, so tell me how significant you think these stats are. So Matt put some of these in our our rundown this year, um, this week. 16 of Mahomes' 17 interceptions have come against four or fewer pass rushers. Okay, so 16 out of 17 is significant. Um, his interception percentage is 3.5 when those four rushers get pressure, 1.2 when they don't. So when four get home, three times higher interception rate. And the 49ers are getting pressure with just four, as we've talked about because of how strong those guys are, on a third of dropbacks when D Ford is on the field, which is high above, I think, the percentage and the average is something like the low 20s. So what this is saying is Mahomes seems most vulnerable when four can get home, and the Niners are especially good at getting four home. Does that make sense? Is that a story? And why would it be that so many of Mahomes' interceptions come in that situation? Because what they're saying is there are a lot of guys in the defensive backfield, I think, as opposed to bringing more guys. You might get you might get pressure faster, but then he's going to, because he's so mobile, he gets outside, and then you've got fewer guys defending those quick receivers in the back. Yeah, so what I would need to see, by the way, I think that is meaningful. I mean, it's clearly a strength of the 49ers. It's clearly, I mean, I don't know if 3.5 is that. I'm putting that much weight in its different percentage, 3.5 versus 1.2. It might be one or two interceptions that he's thrown. I think the question you have to ask is, were these deep balls he's trying to throw? I mean, we have to understand a little bit about those yeah. interceptions. Still Fair doesn't enough. forecast very many interceptions. In right, it's still right. If, if he throws 40 times, <laughs> yeah. it still gives him yeah, one or one, zero. Well, I think he's on the longest run. I think he he's is. on the longest run ever for not having thrown a pick in a, a playoff series. That is in correct. Playoff career. So, guys, before we lose Eric, and while we have you both here, oh, yeah. I think you've probably got a few opinions on the Hall of Fame um, ballots that just came in. Really? Yeah. So, how, this, how this, so Jeter was expected to come in. 
I guess the only question was whether it was going to be unanimous. Well, yeah, it wasn't unanimous. And, of course, that one voter was only one voter who voted against Jeter. Um, are we planning a trip on July 26th, Eric? Are we going to go celebrate well, our Yankee? Uh, well, what's really? going on? So I, I, <laughs> I just threw um, this out here. He doesn't I, know about this. <laughs> Shane is making quite the face. <laughs> Well, let me just say, let me just, I mean, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful place to visit. Don't, <laughs> right, don't right. get me wrong. but Maybe Caden. Uh, I know Mike Salfino mentioned he has never been. In, Salfino you know, would so, be up for it. That'd right. be, that's a good time to do it. Um, let me just say a birthday surprise, my birthday's next week, may have been ruined by my seeing something. Um, I think I am going to Cooperstown this year. Okay. Oh. Um, it would be great if Ooh. you were with me, but we'll talk about that <laughs> off the air. Yes, I am going to Cooperstown so, this so year. With Rivera, somebody abstained. Somebody who didn't want to vote for him abstained so he would be unanimous. But that somebody didn't do didn't, that? No, someone voted, wrong? left a, a ballot without his yeah, name on it. Right. Submitted a ballot without his but name But that on. didn't happen that, with Jeter. That did not happen with, no, with Rivera. Rivera got a unanimous ballot. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Jeter had someone who voted no. Yeah, yeah, So exactly. And, and it's, it's actually quite interesting because while there is really no debate that he is a Hall of Famer, the, the question is, did he deserve 99.7% of the ballot? And as, as Eric likes to say, is he a, is he a top tier, second tier, yeah. or third tier? And there's people who debate about this. I mean, the major reason for that is that, well, I mean, he didn't lead the league in anything very often, if at is all. He, is he right? the greatest shortstop of all time? Um, and I would say people would say, no, no he's not no. the greatest short, no. shortstop of all no. time. That, that, that's that's way, it. Who, who are the greatest shortstops of all Cal time? Cal Ripken, Honus Wagner. Well, Honus Wagner, yeah, yeah, what, definitely. What are, I, um, didn't he play short? Ernie Banks? Not, uh... He wasn't but, a shortstop. I don't. Was, short, was Ernie Banks a shortstop? Now, now I'm questioning. You know, yeah, back I, in the day, National yeah. League was something that an yeah. American League player just didn't follow. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. Um, so but I don't regard, have a regardless. Well, I think Jeter was a better shortstop than Cal Ripken. I think so. I think he was a better shortstop. Remember, and I also think he was career WAR. He's substantially lower. Well, I know the career WAR. Like Twenty I, I, okay, WAR lower. All right. All right. Wait, let me just, just say. I know you're just saying, but a lot saying. of that career <laughs> WAR comes from. He well, played for a long time. He played for a very long time. And Did second he play of all, some third base as well? Yes, Cal Ripken Late did play third, third base. By the way, Jeter, by the way, I just looked at this because I, so I was more Jeter quick. credit for playing shortstop. I, I, I can't abide. I can't abide. Shouldn't have been. I can't abide by making more this holy oh, this holy figure. Well, so let's talk all about right. holy figures. Let's talk about modeling because it feels to me like this was predictable. Like even Walker, Walker was supposed to be marginal, but it was his he last ballot, so mm-hmm. you probably get a bump for your yeah. last ballot. But otherwise, the model seemed to be doing pretty well. Is it the case that the the body that votes on this is that predictable and that stationary and the standards are Well, I think what happens is, is that with forecasting Hall of Fame, particularly after the 10, almost every player falls into one of two groups, in or out. <laughs> I mean, it's, at the end really? of the day, yes. There's why a would tiny, it be, why would tiny it be, fraction of players why would who are be? genuinely on the border. And why, why Walker it, was one. <laughs> he well, really why, was but that's one. That's not the way people's careers are distributed. Why would it be that it's bimodal like that? Well, it's a tiny fraction. It's like 1% that make it, 99 don't. I know. But there's but, probably, I would say the number of, of people who are on the border relative to the number who make it is probably one, one-fifth. Well, I think about this year's group, right? Let's forget the people, the, the supposed PED users. I think we have Kurt Schilling, who's another person that's going to end up right on the knife He's on edge. the border. I think he's going to or get Mike in. Or Mike Messina. I mean, Mike Messina. Mike no, Messina no, 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 no. Very fair. Well, that's yep, another yep. person who's yeah. absolutely... Uh, my, my point is, is that the number of of, of 
pretty much sure things are about five times as large as the on the borders. Yes. I think every year we get yes. three, four, five coming in every year. And then the ones who are hanging on there year after year, they're a pretty small number, and the rest are no's. So well, act- that, well, one, that makes sense because if the, if the bar cuts at like the 98th yeah. percentile, then you've got 2% to the some stretched out to right. the far right. Exactly. And you got some and stacked up there. And they're the interesting cases, and this is what we love to argue about. I mean, so no one's going to argue that Jeter's not a Hall of Famer. You argue about when he gets in and how much votes he gets. Yeah. But Messina and is interesting, and someone like Walker is really interesting because he's a novelty. The guy was in Colorado. Talk about not having particularly impressive statistics. I mean, well, he hit 314 over his career, 311. 313, yeah. Oh, in Colorado, in the early stages of Colorado, before they, they basically moved the fences out, that place was just a, it but, was a Band-Aid yeah. box but with don't light people air. Norm, so have people not normed not sufficiently? They, yes, they, yes, they have in the following sense. I think Larry Walker, if his numbers were playing in, let's say, you know, I don't know, Los Angeles, if he had been playing in Dodger Stadium with these numbers, I think he would have gotten into the Hall of Fame sooner. Yeah. In other words, his okay. career war, by the way, is slightly higher than Jeter's, for whatever it's worth, in less seasons. Um, his OPS is much higher than Jeter. As a matter of fact, his home op- this is why people bother. His home OPS was 1.16, mm-hmm. and his yep. away was 0.86. So that, I mean, yeah, that's I'm, still a good away. OPS, right? It's, it's, it's not a Hall of Fame. Not, not anywhere. Hall of fame. It's not a Hall of Fame. Even, and, and for an outfielder, point eight. no, not even close wow. to a Hall yeah. of Fame. Okay. And the thing about Colorado, which makes it difficult, is that home... When you're a player for Colorado, you're adjusted to it, and you hit the crap out of the ball, and Walker was exemplified that. When you're a visitor to Colorado, you don't do well at all, which is why Colorado has this massive um, home field advantage. And there are several reasons for that. First is the altitude adjustment. It's very hard for, a, for a, someone you show up in, Colo- in Colorado. In Denver, it takes a couple of days to even acclimate. You feel sick, and this That's, makes it typical. sounds exaggerated. It does, but it's not... At, at, 12,000. Guys, I, I just don't think like you to, feel sick. I mean, the yeah, issue is the ball moves a little bit less, and you yeah. just aren't well, used to it. Well, that is true. And, and, yeah. and, and what happens is, is that when you try to adjust for Colorado, and this is how these, this is why one of the weaknesses, statistically, it doesn't look like such a crazy ballpark. And because the differential is the home of her way, and they just sort of throw everybody in there, and they say, how, do you, how does it all work out? Well, let me out? tell you something I, I didn't realize about Larry Walker. How many gold gloves do you think Larry Walker had? He was a good fielder. How many years did you play he played 17. I heard he was a great corner outfielder. That's what they say. Like five, maybe? He has seven. Yeah. Okay. So that actually made me feel a little bit better about his Hall of Fameness, which is definitely a marginal player for the Hall of Fame, in my view. He, you know, his career stats weren't. Great. There are 60 okay. home runs in 17 years. That's nuts. Yeah, 2,300 hits I, in yeah, 17 not years. So, Adi, do you not support his having been voted in? Uh, I don't. I, I, yeah, I, I don't ah, support it. I really do not. I'm going to th- and just want to follow up with one other thing about Why this. Do you th- so, so his hall, his, he certainly was a very good fielder. But one of the issues, of course, with Colorado is when a corner outfielder. The way they did this before contemporary data, which still hasn't been worked out because you don't have they don't have tracking data. So what they essentially did for fielding value is just look at number of catches you made. Colorado is this unbelievably vast place, which it is because that's how they've compensated for the low altitude is gigantic um, fences and very roaming out yeah, there. Yeah, big outfield. So what happens with the methods that they use is just look at how many catches you made. And you get more catches Way if you have more, more space catches if you have more space. Absolutely. Wow, yeah. so interesting. Wait, and more well, hits because things fall in. So Walker went, the models had him at only 15.5% likely to, to 50, forecasted 15.5% of the votes. Talking about only uh, 538 or 
I don't know whose model this is. Well, he, but only four years ago. Yeah. Why does a guy move that well, far? He went from 50.5. You have to get 75 to get in. Just to be clear, last year he was at 53%. Yeah. So his jump was outrageous. It's, it, that's yeah. an outrageous but jump. There must be a dummy in there. In your models, yeah, there must last be a dummy year. for last, last year. year. And what that's is right. the. What is but the, I, I, I think we're saying that the last year jump for Walker was Higher, uncharacteristically large. Very, very large. Even, even, large. even okay. allowing for a last year jump. Okay, then what's your explanation for why? Like, why did he get in? Why did he get such a big jump at the end? What are the politics of this? I don't know. I'll I think, give you one th- one theory was that except for Derek Jeter, there wasn't a very there wasn't strong class. This was not a strong class. Yeah. And so they could have just had... Well, I'm saying I'm, I'm eliminating yeah, is, Bonds yeah. and Clemens and Ramirez. Matt, by the way, I don't know why people aren't talking about the fact that I was just looking at this. If there wasn't for supposed PED use, I have no reason why... I'll compare Manny Ramirez's career numbers against Larry oh, Walker. Manny Ramirez's. No, no, I'm just saying. Yeah. And if he was sitting there at 28 he'd be yeah. a first ballot Hall of yeah, Fame. Sure. That's exactly right. Clemens, Bonds, and Ramirez no, no. would be first ballot without, yeah. the, without the PEDs. No, yeah. Well, Clemens Agreed. and Bonds would be in my, you know... Top twenty Hall of Famers of all time. Of if they, if it wasn't for, well, PED yeah, if, use. if not for PEDs, Bonds would probably be one of these things Top. where we'd be like, why isn't wasn't that unanimous? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, He's a home run king. I actually had an interesting thought coming in here. You know, when R- Rivera last year got into the Hall of Fame, they put on his plaque that he was unanimous. I was thinking about the psychology of this. Do you put on Jeter's? That he was ninety nine point seven percent. In some sense, no, it's no, right, right. <laughs> yes, it's the second no. highest of all time. I feel it's like the they, second highest of all time. They got enough to talk about on that plaque. I feel like, yeah. no, no, no. But I was that. just saying the I, psychology I think, of it is almost. Yeah. And I don't call it the silver medal, silver medal phenomenon. Yeah, but it's yeah. almost like. By being so close to 100%, but not there, right. it's almost something you want to hide. Do we know who voted against him? We, we will find out. We, we don't, don't at the now, moment. There's something, there's something called the DiMaggio rule for many years, which is that no one should get a higher percentage than DiMaggio. <laughs> and there were, there were writers who would just sort of throw out no votes just because in deference to the great DiMaggio. These are guys who had watched him play. Oh, God. And we don't, I mean, I've read wonderful histories of that period. I don't think we understand the cultural icon. Well, look, as you well know, thank goodness we're not hearing at all that the Hall of Fame voters are biased towards Yankees players no, in general, no, right? Well, I mean, thank goodness. Can I, yeah. can I just got right. a nice objective view of baseball. It is the Hall of Fame. Well, that's <laughs> right. Well, Shane, that's I'll say the following. True. You even asked, is he the greatest point. shortstop of all time? I mean, obviously, because the Yankees have a very storied yeah. history. Most people, I was reading Yankee blogs yesterday and everything. Uh, and people would argue <laughs> he may not even be in the ten top ten greatest Yankees of yeah, all time. Yeah, yeah. Forget yeah. top shortstop. I mean, I could start naming historical Yankees. Yeah. I mean, he yeah, may not right. be at the top ten of Yankees of all yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, I think Rivera. I mean, I had no problem with him as a unanimous selection because I mean, again, he he kind of not only was he the kind of he he redefined almost that position. That and, you know, of and he closer. also gave away his sign what he was throwing every time. Yeah. They all knew. Everybody knew what he was going to throw. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't matter. <laughs> good fun. Remarkable. Good fun. Well, um, yeah. Eric, thanks for sliding in here. I know we, you have a busy day. I know we want to get your thoughts on the Hall of Fame. It's always fun to have you. Anyway, so that has been the first quarter of Money one, Mort, Morton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. 
Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner, my longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators. Eric Bradlow just slipped out of here. He's got some conference goings-ons to do. You guys can jump in. Give us a shout, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Hit us up on email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or you can catch us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there. We follow the world of sports analytics and tweet periodically about it. In this half hour, delighted to welcome Coach Paul Alexander onto the show. First time guest. We've been following Paul some. He's a great follow on Twitter at Coach Paul Alex. At Coach Paul Alex. Entertaining and probably even more important, educational. One of the most educational follows you can have out there for understanding football. Coach Alexander, welcome to the show. Good morning to you. Well, thank you. I hope I live up to your great recommendation. <laughs> we, we have no we have no doubts that you will. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I am sitting in the Hotel Admiral uh, in Mobile, Alabama, having breakfast while I'm uh, getting ready to go to the Senior Bowl. I'm covering the, the Senior Bowl with the uh, Moving the Chains crew of uh, Sirius XM NFL Channel. So that uh, that sounds like good fun. The, this is one of the all-star games down there for guys that are draft eligible. This is a great way that, that the scouting community gets together and looks at these guys. I've been watching tape. Eventually, they'll go to Indianapolis and do the combine. But right is this now, what they do the, uh, uh, put Daniel Jones up up to the sixth uh, sixth slot? It was his performance in the Senior Bowl? The, I think that that's interesting, Paul. Did, did did Jones have a big bump out of the Senior Bowl? Do you have examples of players who get a big bump down there? Uh, I am an offensive line coach, and unless uh, Jones was in a three point stance hitting the sled, <laughs> I probably didn't see him. No, that's 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 fair enough. Well, tell me about that because you write about offensive schemes more generally, and of course, you 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 talk about quarterbacks. You 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 tweeted during the college football championship about Burrow making audibles, and so you obviously understand the game more broadly. But you're saying that down there in Mobile, they have you looking at the guys in the trenches. Yeah, it's uh, it's just a a technique that you use for uh, escaping interview questions. Actually, no, it, uh, yes, I'm. Not. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm watching the offensive line uh, down here, and uh, oh, it's fun! I'm standing there five feet away from the guys as they're going through the drills and so forth, and I can really see how well they compete and you know what they're made of and how good they are. So, so t- it's been a fun. Yesterday was a fun day. Tell us about how diagnostic these these bo- the the senior bowl is relative to what you see on tape during the season. And then what you see yeah. with all the measurables at the combine? Well, uh, the thing that's interesting that that I, I would bring up because I'm sure your listeners would be interested in this. I'm a big and always have been a big supporter of pro football focus. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of coaches uh, are really, uh, but even when they started, when they were in England, I used to email Neil Hornsby back and forth all the time. No kidding, and. Uh, yeah, and, and we became great friends, and, wow. and I actually helped them develop their grading system. And, wow, uh, didn't realize. That's all, great. Yeah, yeah. When it all went through, I live in Cincinnati, so I have a close connection there. Well, that's and, absurd and, that there's that Cincinnati connection as well, because uh, some listeners may not know that's where they're headquartered now. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, And I do I do work for them now, now that I'm retired. I... I uh, evaluate a number of plays every week that they have questions about and kind of explain to them what the situation is. So, um, but anyways, I've used their analytics. Oh, 
right from the start, before Collingsworth and crew bought the company, and uh, I used to watch, uh, I'd pull up, let's say, Andrew Whitworth, my left tackle. I would pull him up, and then I'd want to see, uh, uh, okay, he's blocking Terrell Suggs this week. So I'd pull up all Terrell Suggs' grades from all the different games, his pass rush in particular, mm-hmm. and say, and say, oh, geez, uh, uh, Peters did a great job against Suggs, all right, uh, uh, in Philadelphia. And I'd say, well, what, good, because you set your techniques just like Peters, you mm-hmm. know. Or, and then maybe I'd pull up Joe Thomas, and maybe Joe Thomas had a rough game, and I'd say, uh, I'd say, okay, Whit, no problem, because your technique's not like Joe Thomas's. Mm-hmm. He's a vertical setter, your kick setter, whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or it could go the opposite way, you know. And I would use that information to quickly find uh, what style of blockers were effective at blocking different defenders. Mm-hmm. And then I would put those games out and I'd say, okay, Whitworth, watch this game, this game, and this game, right? And th- these are the games he was blocked well, and uh, uh, they they actually use a little bit different technique, so we may need to work on that this mm-hmm. week. So, Coach, is that that's something I haven't thought about before because none of us think enough about offensive linemen if we're not directly involved with them. How malleable and flexible are offensive linemen in their techniques? You just described some guys have their types of centers or types of tackles, but now you're saying, well, they might need to approach this particular guy in a different way. Do you find that many of those guys can play in different ways, can use different techniques against different players? I think as time goes on and a guy ages and he he ends up playing for a number of different offensive line coaches, they like to fire us, it seems like, (laughs) regularly. And uh, so they learn these different techniques over time. And uh, when a guy gets to be about 30 years old and he's had, between his college and pros, four or five different line coaches, uh, then, he, then he knows basically the, uh, the gamut of techniques and he has a full toolbox and mm-hmm. he can pull out the right tool for the right player. Mm-hmm. Coach, the, the, we talk about quarterbacks so much when it comes to the draft, and one of the things that seems to be true is that they're especially hard to predict. On the other hand, seemingly one of the most predictable positions, some of the most predictable positions in the draft, are the offensive linemen. I remember, a, a, you, you'll remember who this player is, the guard that came out of Notre Dame maybe three years ago. People said, this guy is a lock, 10-year starter. There's just no variance, no risk on this guy. How how and why is it that offensive linemen are so so predictable? That's right, Zach Martin. So, but why why can we be so much more sure about offensive linemen than about other in college? Senior, yeah, from, uh, seniors in college, going, too, college, well, draft eligible from right. from college to professional. Because I'm not sure that's true from the high school level. No, no, it may not be. Cade, uh, I think I think you're you're dead on there. The statistics indicate uh, that the safest pick in the first round is an offensive lineman mm-hmm. uh, of all the positions. Their their success rate. Uh, and you're spending a lot of money on that first pick. And, uh, you know, so Andy Reid has forever drafted offensive linemen in the first round. You know, he, he knows uh, uh, it's a good investment. It's like buying bonds, I guess. Right. And, and, and I think the issue here, uh, the issue is that there aren't enough big athletic men walking the face of the earth mm-hmm. that can play offensive line. So if you get a big guy who's athletic enough uh, – yeah, he's going to play, and you, and and you might not think he's any good, you know, as a coach or the fan or or the uh, front office. But he's playing because the alternative is, if not him, then who? And uh, <laughs> okay. so, so a lot of those big guys end up making it, in my opinion, 
by default. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not to be condescending. It's to be uh, uh, define the reality of the, the talent pool that's available for big athletic men. But let me put on my Wharton business professor hat for a moment and point out that bonds might be, might be uh, low risk, but they're also low reward. Is it well, similar? I mean, if, you, if you're investing in first-round picks at the offensive linemen, are you winning championships? Uh, if, uh, uh, since I'm debating bonds with a Wharton professor. <laughs> well, that's not, that's not deal with the finance. I'm going to pull out of it. <laughs> D- discretion, discretion is a better part of that. We're talking to Coach Paul Alexander. He's a longtime uh, uh, football coach, both at the college level and then a long career in the NFL. Coach, you said offensive line coaches tend to be fired, but you had a, is it, a, am I right, 23-year run with the Bengals? I did. So that, I you're, did. that must be one of the longest position coaches, certainly in modern football. How is it that you pull that off? What, what led to your stability there with the Bengals? Well, I, you're right. I, I worked through four different head coaches. Um, I was there a long time. If you can imagine, Dave Shula was the guy that hired me. Mm. And uh, Marvin, and I went all the way through... Uh, uh, Marvin Lewis was the last coach, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know. We always had good offensive lines, and uh, we, we had an owner that, uh, oh, if you're a good coach, uh, he would uh, he would want to keep you. Mm-hmm. And and the coaches that all got hired, uh, the first two that were hired, uh, Bruce Coslin and Dick LeBeau, I was already on the staff, So uh, and they were on the staff and elevated. So they I see. must have thought I did a good job. And then Marvin Lewis, when he came, we played against him all the time when he was the defensive coordinator in Baltimore, and uh, he asked me to stay. So um, I think the best thing is to do a good job. Mm -hmm. I had uh, really good offensive lines there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed my time in in, uh, Cincinnati. Tell us something about Cincinnati. We're pretty hard on the Bengals around here. We're pretty hard on those guys, and we're always in the— You shouldn't be. Well, let me tell you why. Exactly. Please do. Okay, Mike Brown, right, is the owner of the Bengals. Mm-hmm. Right? Mike Brown's also the general manager. I told Mike Brown years ago when Russ Brandon uh, uh, took over in Buffalo and uh, Jacksonville, those two teams had de- decided we're going to embark on Moneyball, right, the, mm-hmm. the title of your uh, podcast here. Mm-hmm. And I turned to Mike one day and I said, Mike, you know what? You've been doing Moneyball for thirty years. Really, really. <laughs> well, how? In, in what? Don't, in what way? <laughs> well, don't pay the old guys. Well, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But is that is that because he was interested in Moneyball, or because he had other objectives? One of the knocks on the Bengals is, is that they're not trying to win. It. Uh, oh, I think he. I think he tried to win. I, I think. Uh, shoot the last. Uh, Six years I was in Cincinnati. We went to the playoffs five times. Mm-hmm. In 2005, uh, until 2005, we had the best football team in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, Carson mm-hmm. Palmer blows his knee out in the first round of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. We were going to beat Pittsburgh. I thought we were going to go right through the playoffs and win it all. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then we built up another good team. And uh, what was it, 15? Uh, Andy Dalton breaks his thumb. Uh, in the Pittsburgh game, the last game of the season, and then he's out in the second last game of the season, then he's out of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so we had two rises um, that uh, turned bad, both because by our chance. quarterback got hurt. Yeah, by chance. Well, uh, you're pretty well lined up for the most exciting 
college quarterback we've seen in a while. So that'll be interesting to see. And, you know, between you and Collinsworth and maybe they'll end up with Burrow, maybe we'll have to give them a second look. And you're telling us Brown is favorably disposed to Wharton, to Moneyball anyway. So that's we'll, we'll, we'll take it under <laughs> advisement, a, Coach. We appreciate yeah. it. So tell us about where the league has gone. You, again, most fans, even sophisticated fans, aren't paying that much attention to the offensive line. But it's hard not to see when the Niners are doing what they're doing right now that the line is just incredibly important. And there's kind of a growing appreciation for how important the line is to running back play and, and, and growing sense that we shouldn't credit the running back with the running yards. We should credit the unit with the rushing yards. What What's the state of offensive line play? How advanced, how much change has been there? We see it. It's more visible in the passing game. What, what, how, how would you characterize how it's evolved recently and where it is right now? Uh, the game is constantly changing. It literally is. Um, it's staggering how different the game changed over my close to 30 years of NFL football. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Ken Anderson, the great Bengals quarterback. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told me that when he was a quarterback in the 70s, they lined up in one defense. They lined up in a pro 4-3, which basically a linebacker's over the center, and then there's tackles on the guards and ends on the tackles, and mm-hmm. outside linebackers outside a pro 4-3. Well, the Steelers were one of the first teams with a steel curtain and all that to take the one defensive tackle, and instead of putting them on the guard, they put them on the center. Mm-hmm. So that was a big deal. Right? <laughs> okay. So when he went up to the line of scrimmage, he started yelling, Frank, Frank, Frank. All right? And all they did was move one guy <laughs> a couple feet. Right? I mean, spin that to now. Yeah. They're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to say it's like trying to play an Atari game out there. You know, they're freaking, uh, you know, kill the mole. Right. Uh, who's who? Uh, who's got him? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it's a very confusing proposition now, NFL football. And the biggest changes have been that. The, uh, the spread offenses, the development of the passing game has caused defenses to be more multiple uh, to try to create confusion in the blocking patterns uh, to bring free rushers. Mm-hmm. So um, that's been the biggest thing. The scheme pickups. Now the, the techniques obviously have changed too. Uh, you know, it used to be uh, mostly running. Well, you were down in a three-point stance because of it. Well, now it's mostly passing. So you're in a two-point stance. Well, you're in the shotgun now. Uh, okay. Uh, um, so the techniques are more uh, hand-oriented rather than shoulder-leg drive-oriented. Okay. And, um, so it's 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 a whole evolution which I find to be fascinating. And uh, um, it's an evolution that is actually cyclical in a way, too. I remember I started running, oh, almost 10 years ago, uh, I started running the counter play. You see all the colleges and pro teams now run the counter, pull the backside guard and tackle. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like the first one to bring that back out. I didn't invent that play. That was the Washington Redskins Hogs play. Right, right. You know, way back when. Well, it can't, it's it's in football right now, and guess what? Defensive coordinators are young and didn't live through that era in the 70s and don't really know how to uh, defend the play. That's amazing. So, yeah, so it's cyclical. It, it keeps coming around. These, uh, <laughs> Coach, you know, the 49ers are running offense that was run years ago. Right. 
Right. Well, it gives us some hope that it's not just going to, you know, spiral off into this, you know, XFL kind of all pass seven on seven kind of thing. Um, what would you if you could direct the casual fans attention to the line in some way, if we were if we if wanted to deepen our appreciation of because we know it's so critical. But our eye is drawn to the ball and the speed players. What, what can you give us some advice or some direction to how we can better appreciate and pay attention to what's going on in the lines? Follow me on Twitter. Well, I, I agree with that. I, by the way, let's just hit it again. At Coach Paul Alex, at Coach Paul Alex, you have you, we're educators here, and you are doing a masterful job educating via the you know one minute snippet, two minute snippet. It's really it's really enlightening. Let, let, let me tell you my story. Um, I had coached almost thirty five years and not been personally fired uh, in the NFL or major college football, and I went to the Dallas Cowboys after. Uh, we left Cincinnati. My wife and I, well, hey, let's go see the world. Mm-hmm. The, the plum job came open, the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. It's great. So I go there. Eight months later, I get fired. <laughs> well, whatever. We had a difference of a philosophy, I guess. Okay. And uh, But what happened is I signed a two-year contract, and uh, I said, well, I'm going to take this as like my sabbatical and then come back and coach. And I found over this time during my sabbatical, if you will, that I love what I'm doing, teaching football. Mm-hmm. And to top it all off, three months ago, I had a heart attack. Oh, no. And uh, and it was a, a, a significant heart attack. It was a widowmaker where, oh, wow. where, well, only 10% of us survive it. Wow. And uh, about 2% of us survive it without damage. I was lucky. I was one of the 2%. Jeez. Um, I got to the hospital in time, and I kind of realized that after that, that, you know what, I've learned a lot of football. I've been very lucky. I've lived a blessed life, and I'm going to spend the rest of my time here sharing what I've learned. Mm -hmm. My regret would be to take it to the grave. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what I do what I do on Twitter. I've, I've been around the world. I've been to Germany twice, London, Scotland. I'm going to Australia I've been to 75 different high schools and colleges mm-hmm. uh, around the country. Um, by the way, I can come to Penn if you want. Uh, We'd love to I, have you any any time. Yeah. We would help. We would help make that happen. I, I actually, you know what I do? I speak. I'm I'm uh, I'm a well a semi pro uh, uh, and I'm an advanced amateur pianist. Let me put it that way. Well, we want to hear advanced we want, amateur. We want to hear okay. more about that because my understanding is you didn't even learn to play piano until you were 47. Yeah, I have a daughter who's very talented. She just graduated from the Berkeley College of Music. Ah, my son graduated great. last year from the Berkeley College of Music. Wow. Same class. What what was he? He was a mandolinist. What? He's a mandolinist. Yeah. I hope my daughter knows him. Yeah. It's a big school. <laughs> yeah, my, my daughter's uh, uh, my daughter's a singer and a songwriter, and she's actually in the music business now. She mm-hmm. works for a, a, a big agency in Boston, where they represent jazz musicians and so forth. And she but, in, she influenced you towards music and piano. Well, she was in fourth grade. And she was so good that they said, okay, she's got to go to the conservatory in Cincinnati and study with this Austrian world-famous pianist, concert pianist. Well, she goes there, and after a couple lessons, she would leave crying all the time. She was in fourth grade, and he was the greatest guy. But his German accent, and really, she was intimidated by how good he was. Right. And uh, she was like, I want to quit. And I said, no, you can't quit. I said, uh, 
why don't we do it together? Mm. I'll do the first half an hour, and you do the second half an hour. Mm. So it, it turned out that it was wonderful, and I kept doing it, and I learned all these techniques that great musicians use about learning, memorizing, practicing, rehearsing, performing under pressure, how wow. they get up in front of thousands of people and wow. play 10,000 notes and don't miss one the whole night. How do they do that? I've wondered that and, myself. Uh, and so I, I've taken those things and I've meshed them with different teaching and learning concepts uh, in coaching mm-hmm. and teaching. And I wrote a book on it. Mm. Tell us and, about the book. Uh, Tell us the name of the book, Coach. Uh, the name of the book is Perform. Perform. The subtitle is a concert. Uh, the subtitle is an NFL coach trains with a concert pianist. Wonderful. And yeah, and and it's kind of great. So I've got all these theories of coaching now and teaching that are actually oh pedagogical uh, uh, techniques used by musicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it's fun. And I and I've taught all these. I know the best. Uh, Emmanuel Axe is the greatest American pianist in the world. Juilliard okay. plays for. All the, I mean, I've become friends with all these people. <laughs> That's and, great. Uh, That's you know, just told them, as I've as told offensive them line coaches do, as offensive line coaches do, you know. So, just living that cliched life, Coach Alexander. <laughs> yeah. So, so Coach, we're we're down so we're down to just the last minute or so, thirty seconds or so. So I I'm, I hate to rush you. We could do a whole segment on learning the piano, actually, and we'll track your book down. But we wanted to thank you for coming on to the show. We wanted to wish you the best down there in Mobile with the work you're doing there and going forward. Love, again, the work you're doing on the Internet. It's a great time in football analytics, and you're really helping advance the conversation. Well, thank you. Absolutely. That's Paul Alexander, Coach Paul Alexander. You can you can catch him on Twitter, at Coach Paul Alex. He's got a new book out called Perform, blending what he learned Picking up piano late in life with his coaching life. He was a longtime NFL and major college football offensive line coach, one of the best out there, Coach Paul Alexander. That has been the first half of Wharton Money, but we still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow stepped away. Some combination of us four are here every Wednesday. You guys can be here. Give us a shout. We'd like to have you. one 844 Wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. If you've never called in, give us a call. Some of you guys are just listening, passively taking it in. You can jump in here and ask a question, make an observation. You can also hit us up on email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At W Moneyball, just off the line with Coach Alexander, longtime offensive line coach. I'm telling you, you want to learn something about football because most of us, even if we've been watching it our whole lives, don't actually know much about football. Coach Alexander is a good way to do it. Coach Paul Alex is his handle at Coach Paul Alex. He'll throw a little clip up there, and two minutes later, you'll know something about football that you've been watching your whole life and didn't realize. We would recommend it. 
Alexander called us from uh, Mobile, where they're doing the Senior Bowl down there. They're looking at college players. Hermsmeyer does not look like to look at college players. He's very snobby, very snobby about his football. He's all about the pro game. Pro Josh Hermsmeyer joining us from, I'm guessing, Idaho. Doesn't good the morning. program get fed good, by the college? Maybe so. Good, <laughs> good morning, Josh. How are you? Good morning, guys. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Welcome back to the show. Always glad to have you. We were just asking uh, Matty D, why is Josh on the show? We like him and everything. Is that the reason, just because we like him? And maybe that's the reason, but it's also because this is the last football show. We've got one more game. We'll debrief the Super Bowl, you know, but between now and then, we don't have much football to talk about. We had to get, we had to grab you before the end of the season. Um, how how are you out there, Josh? What are you working on? What are you thinking about this morning? You know, my, my brain is full of Super Bowl props right now. It's kind of, probably the same way as your, as your friend Rufus. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so I'm kind of thinking about uh, Super Bowl halftime shows right now. I'm thinking about how to predict which song in a set will come up first. So my, my mind isn't quite on football yet, but it's football achievement. Well, this is what well, I did. This is on my list. To well, ask you got to you get about. those nitty-gritty technical details out of the way before you start focusing on the big picture. I think. Right? Well, look, man, you've been writing about football. Even even the, the the biggest diehards they they need a break, right? So you've been writing about football for months, intensely watching it. I can understand why you might be wearing out, and you'd rather turn your attention to music. So this time last year, this time last year. You did this thing on the national anthem. So, props. This is this crazy thing with you can always get some prop bets, but with the Super Bowl they just blow up. You have all these props, and like you said, Rufus Peabody. As soon as the game is picked at the end of the conference championship games, he'll just spend obsessively a week or more modeling all these props, and they get they probably get as much money down on props as the game. Maybe probably more down on props than the game. So they had this prop last year on how long the national anthem is going to last. And you brought your analytics chops to that problem. Can you give us a real quick recap of what you wrote and then how the thing went down there? What were your insights? Because you kept on going lower, more deeper and deeper into that thing. And I think you kind of cracked it. Uh, yeah. So there, was a, there were a couple trends that turned out to be useful. One was that just over time, the, the amount of time that the singer of the National Anthem spent on the song itself uh, increased. And, and it was increased significantly over time. I used... Arima to figure that out, and then just looking at <laughs> did you mail. really use an Arima model to figure that out? <laughs> yeah, I did, I did, and, uh, and, then, and then I uh, and then I looked at male versus female, and and it wasn't significant, but it was there was a trend that females were more uh, they they would take longer at the anthem. So anyway, long story short, it, it certainly seemed like uh, Gladys was gonna was gonna go long on her national anthem, and it turned out that she did go just slightly over, and so. Uh, you know my Twitter credibility is still intact. Oh yeah, totally. But you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna roll the dice again. Have you announced yet what you're gonna do this year? No, happy to talk about it right now. Though. All right, let's I, debut. I, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm going into trying to predict what Jennifer Lopez's first song of her set <laughs> will be. All right, um, all right. Yeah, yeah. This is exciting stuff. How, well, 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 <laughs> give us kind of an idea of the complexity of this, like like. If if uh, would a naive person like are we talking about like she's probably got a choice of like her top five songs or so like what's kind of the choice set that you're kind of modeling here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So like the naive you know hypothesis coming in would be well she's just going to do start off with a bang with her first and most important song or the song that has the most uh, views sales listens on YouTube something like that mm-hmm. Billboard for instance is predicting it's her most watched song. On I YouTube have no idea what that is, by the way. So can you tell me? Yeah, tell Audie what Jennifer Lopez's most popular song is. Uh, well, 
how about this? I'll tell you which one uh, the the books think is the uh, most likely okay. to be played, Good. and it m- might be more helpful. They think they're they're giving it a twenty percent implied probability that "Let's Get Loud" or another song called "On the Floor" will be played. Okay, so that's, okay. that's where you start. That's okay. where you start. Those, those are the two favorites, um, and both of those were named by Billboard. So I, my assumption here is that's what the books are doing. Is they're looking at the most popular song and say, well, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. Well, it turns out that it turns out that most of these acts don't open their halftime show with their most popular song. They there end you go. with their most popular song. So that's uh, one thing. No, that's yeah. very good. Look at, look at a nice historical frequency. Well, no Arima models yeah. for this though. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> no, no Arima model for this one. But and then the other thing that's interesting is that I, I, I found a website called setlist.fm and basically you can go back through time and look at every single performance um, every single gig that a performer has done and look at the sequencing of their song list and see which songs tend to come up first. Mm-hmm. And none of the favorites have ever been played first in a Jennifer Lopez set. So mm-hmm. there, there, there is some, there are some trends that will probably be useful in, uh, and identifying. Well, can which you can you kind of? I, I kind of want to yeah, dive a little deeper on this. <laughs> like, is is yeah. the tendency to kind of? Uh, Obviously, Jennifer's got her own like personal tendency to not play her most popular songs first. But like when you were looking kind of historically at Super Bowls, I mean, you know, t- we often you've got kind of more the sort of diva performers versus like kind of the more rock bands. Are they like dramatic? Like, are they different in terms of like their prevalent, you know, their propensity to play kind of their their big hits? Like when the Rolling Stones did it like a few years ago, I can't remember what song they played yeah. first. But are, are rock bands more likely or less likely to kind of you know, go by their billboard, uh, billboard kind of rankings with their with their song lists. Yeah, so there was a time after uh, the Nip Slip episode with Janet Jackson, where the NFL went toward the older rock bands, it's more conservative, I guess, is the way they were going. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, the, the the Rolling Stones were there, the Who, um, I believe Stevie Wonder was trotted back out there again, and uh, the Rolling Stones started with "Start Me Up," you know, um, and and that was. A relatively famous song it was relatively new windows 95 used it as their mm. launch song and famously paid them millions of dollars for that so i think that i think that you know popularity is is kind of i don't know it's, it's, it's amorphous thing to kind of judge for your for your first song i i did take youtube views and i'm i'm not done with that analysis but i think that'll be useful and here's the really interesting thing though like for instance you can't make a bet on this this wager in Vegas and you know for, for probably pretty good reason because if you're the start money I was doing a little research they just hired 600 they're called field managers down in Miami and what mm. you're supposed to do is go on the field build the set and get off you don't get to watch the game but you get to be at the Super Bowl and one of the other stipulations of this job is that you have to be there every day for two weeks for full rehearsal. Oh wow! And uh, so it seems to me like this. Yeah, that's going to be leaked knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be hard to keep a lid on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think that's how you uh, that's how you solve the problem. But you, you can only place very small bets on on overseas books uh, for these kind of ridiculous problems. So we're talking to Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is a writer for Five Thirty Eight, founder of Air Yards. He is a great follow on Twitter at Frisco Josh at Frisco Josh. So your namesake team made the Super Bowl. What's your take on uh, the the uh, Chiefs Niners? What's your what are your early thoughts on Chiefs Niners? I think our uh, five thirty eight QB Elo model. So that's our model that takes the old Elo uh, rankings and then adds in the QB factor. 
um, gives the Chiefs 63% win probability, so they're like a 3.5-point uh, favorite. Mm-hmm. I think that's about right. I, I'm kind of I'm a little more bullish on KC. They actually, through the playoffs, have been about 1.6 times more efficient on an EPA per play basis than um, than San Francisco. And, you know, it's that passing game, right? Mm-hmm. It's, that, it's that Mahomes just being just an incredibly great quarterback, especially relative to Garoppolo. I think we, we, we have something called QB points. It's just basically ELO points that we attribute to the quarterback position. And he's lapping lapping Garoppolo through uh, through the year. Now, Josh, so, we we know the analytics community has gotten pretty negative on the importance of the rush game. A lot of folks are pushing back, especially given the success of the Niners. You know, Garoppolo didn't even throw ten passes. I think he had eight passes. No one's thrown. No one's won a playoff game throwing less than ten since the since the Don Shula era. Yeah, but they were good passes. <laughs> so, so I'm just I'm just saying this is you know, the the rushing game that they have is certainly fodder for an argument on yeah you're putting too much weight on the quarterback game we don't need Garoppolo to be Mahomes we've got this crazy rushing game yeah I think I think uh, people were joking last week after the game that Raheem Mostert kind of killed analytics yeah right um, you know I mean that was an incredible performance I think I think what it did you guys just t- talked to an offensive line coach incredible follow on Twitter as you mentioned. Um, he'll talk to you about how how you win with technique in the trenches. Just incredible stuff to learn. But I think the old saw in the NFL about how you have to stop the run to win. I mean, it was on display. I mean, it, it is true for a reason. If you can't stop the run, you're just done. Mm-hmm. It's just it's, it's table stakes for most NFL games. It's just something that they put so much emphasis on that it doesn't really carry a lot of signal typically. But when the wheels fall off, you get something like what happened with San Francisco. And Green Bay, and and I I don't think you'll see a repeat of that in the Super Bowl for a host of reasons. Uh, but probably the the most important of which is I don't believe San Francisco is going to be playing with a lead too terribly much. I mean maybe maybe if they jump out to a lead like people have done the last two games in the playoffs versus Kansas City, you know they'll be able to lean on the run a little bit early. But Mahomes and that offense are just. They're they're outrageously dangerous to the air, and they they can score very quickly. And mm-hmm. I guess your basic your see to to make to make that argument, you are kind of basically it, it's predicated on Mahomes just being a, that much better at what he does than Aaron Rodgers or Kirk Cousins, because the the game script actually could be very similar for San Francisco in those games. I mean, Casey has gotten behind in both the games that they've played in the playoffs. And if San Francisco does have a lead, then they can, you know, kind of run run it at will. And I don't think any of us are very confident that Kansas City is going to be able to effectively stop their running attack. It really is all about Mahomes' ability to come from behind. I think I, I think I, I guess I would, I would push back just slightly on their inability to stop the run. If they bring enough people down into the box, if they cheat a safety down into a run fit every down, they're going to eventually make – Jimmy Garoppolo, Garoppolo beat them, and I think that might be the the game plan, right? Is, is to make this this quarterback that we know can't go toe to toe with our quarterback be the guy. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I mean, if you have a numbers advantage in the box, at some point, you know, running for three yards because every gap's filled by a defender just stops making sense. Mm-hmm. And Shanahan's too smart of a coordinator to, to to keep running into brick walls. So he'll you know play action. He'll do things to trick the trick the defense and. And, and Jimmy G is serviceable. He can be effective. They completely sell out for the run. I'm not saying he won't be able to move the ball, but I think that 
I think they're going to have to rely on Jimmy at some point. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Shanahan. What makes him such a special coach? And can we be more sure that he's special than we were last year when people were raving about McVay? Yeah, I, I mean, no. No, I, I don't think anyone can say for sure whether a, 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 a coach is more special than his peers. Um, a very difficult problem. I know there are some people with uh, some, some, some pretty uh, – some pretty high up uh, jobs in, in the NFL have looked at that problem. There was a Sloan paper on it. I think that I think that their people at PFF are working on it, sort of using their WAR metric, their wins above replacement metric. You're talking and about coaching evaluations, quantitative coaching and models for coaches. That's, that's correct. Okay, that's correct. And, and I, I think there's some promise to that to that uh, approach, but uh, in the end, it's really difficult to know who's truly better, how to disentangle that from team performance. But Shanahan certainly, no one would argue that he is an absolutely a master at scheme and getting his players in the best position to win. What's different about what he's doing? Why does it look so different watching, you know, I feel like such a rube when I watch those guys play. I swear I've been watching football my entire life, and I'm just like, oh, wow, that offense works well. What is it that what is it <laughs> that he's doing that makes, makes such a difference on the field? My gosh, I hope you ask Coach uh, Alexander that question because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we've only had three games since he's specifically this last game to really, you know, look at the look at the tape, which you have to do to understand how a coach is doing what he's doing. Numbers don't tell that story, the why of why they were successful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but for, for, for Shanahan, what he's been doing for most of the season is he's very good at finding angles in the defense. So it's not just the fact that, you know, it's my guy against your guy. He can actually get his offensive lineman blocking in such a way that there's an angle. And he has this stable of running backs that are just incredibly fast. Raheem Mostert was the second fastest player crossing the line of scrimmage in the NFL and as measured by miles per hour um, in the league. Oh, wow. Just behind, okay. just behind Lamar Jackson. So just, oh, yeah, wow. just and, and, and then, and then down the way there was Matt Breida, who's also incredibly fast. So he gives these incredible NFL athletes angles and gaps and holes that even though they're not high draft picks or, or well thought of in terms of other, uh, their talent in other ways, at the running back position, they can hit holes fast. And he's able to create those angles and holes better than almost anyone. But, but do you have any sense of how and why he does that? Why is it? It's always amazing when a guy, you know, there have been thousands of coaches for a hundred years now trying to trying to create more explosive offenses or more productive offenses, and now this is the first I've ever heard about. Well, he's trying to get angles, and this guy's apparently getting wow. angles. I mean, who's Shanahan? Well, no, why Shanahan? Or, or let me ask a kind of specific version of Kay's question. Like, would would this have been predictable based on what he was doing down with uh, in, in Atlanta as an offensive coordinator? Was he also trying to kind of create these angles and stuff like that? And they certainly did have a pretty high-powered offense, but it wasn't kind of this – transcendent thing we're seeing now and maybe that was just about the personnel they had at the time was this kind of i guess predictable or, or could we have seen this coming out of kyle shanahan no I, I mean so he's running outside zone he's running the same and in, in inside zone and wide zone all these different flavors of zone which is basically just the line is moving in one direction creating what's sometimes called a cutback lane but isn't technically a cutback lane but in any event You've got your, your running back running towards a, a marker, basically a, a place on the field. They're aiming for the outside of the outside tackle or the inside uh, guard, whomever, depending on the play call. And with that line all moving together, you can create holes in the defense. And, and, and everyone's been doing this for the past 25 years. So he's not doing anything scheme-wise that's so much different. I think it's the sequencing of his plays. 
It's how they look relative to passing plays, other running plays, the way he sets up his other plays with mm-hmm. with looks and motion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's a, a particular scheme innovation as Shanahan has done. It's just that he's, he's good at being, I guess, half a step ahead of the defense in terms of what they're expecting. Josh, what's your sense of why that's so hard to do? I know the the most common whipping boy on any coaching staff is the offensive coordinator because everyone feels like we can call better plays and why didn't he just call the touchdown play and all that all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What but why it, it is it is odd that it's so it's so rare because it's so satisfying when you have a, a play caller who does sequence in this way and one play builds off another in a logical way and because of that there's all this deception that seems like it ought to be first order in putting together an offense. And yet it doesn't seem like many folks do it that well. Why would that be? Is that, do you, do you agree with that characterization? And if so, why would that be? Well, I mean, Joe Thomas agrees with that characterization. He's a former, you know, uh, uh, left tackle for the Cleveland Browns. And he just put out something on Twitter the other day where he said that, you know, most coaches have two columns. They're two column offensive coordinators. They got to run, you got to pass. They decide whether they're going to run, they're going to pass They pick a play from one column. And he, he describes Shanahan as a one-column offensive coordinator mm. where he, he's calling a play in sequence in a way that, you know, is reflective past plays, is anticipatory of future plays, and, and isn't this pick-column kind of, of way of doing things. So if you believe Joe Thomas, it's, it's, it's uncommon. Um, and and he, I would think he would know. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, don't, I don't have a good answer as to why that might be the case other than it's probably really hard. Yeah, you know, it's probably really hard to design plays every week, get them installed and taught to your team that are just different enough that you're going to fool the defense, but not mm-hmm. so different that they're impossible to install. Yeah, right. That must be an important trade-off, right? The, enough repetition that your team can actually execute it. But yeah, and so tr- trust in uh, yeah. trust in the personnel that you have to execute. I think has got to be the one of the major living reagents yeah, to that. Right. Do they have more plays than a typical team has, and that makes this possible, or they have the same number and he just has a more complex model, if you will, for the way he chooses them and uses structure, both past and future, that most people don't in their decision making. Which is it, or is it a combination? Yeah, I don't know that he has a a bigger menu, uh, except that I think he puts more motion involved uh, in each play. So there's lots of different tags, and he can give his quarterback a good read on what the defense is, whether it's man or zone, um, by motioning tight ends, wide receivers, doing a crazy orbit motion behind him, back and forward. I mean, you'll see some insane things out of Shanahan. I think he motioned at one of the highest rates in the league, mm-hmm. uh, right up there with the Baltimore Ravens this past year. And I, and so I think uh, in terms of complexity, that's probably where it lies. Mm-hmm. Let's give Andy Reid a little time here as well. People rave about Reid. You know, he, t- he took some flack a number of years ago among the analytics community for, you know, game, game management and some, some late game situations. But in general, he is revered. Why is it that he's so revered? What is it that he does special? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I think it's, uh, from my perspective, the thing I, I admire most about him is we're, you know, as outsiders or people who comment on the game, we always go, why aren't you taking advantage of your talent? Why aren't you maximizing your talent? The people you have, why aren't you building a system around them? Mm-hmm. And that's something Andy Reid does just, just incredibly well. He went from a game manager in Alex Smith, a guy who doesn't push the ball down the field, um, you know, who it, it plays within himself, who isn't trying to make mistakes, to, you know, a guy who creates like an artist on the field in Patrick Mahomes. And, and he changed his system. He brought in college concepts and, and, and really embraced the spread offense that Mahomes came from in the air raid. So I think that that adaptability 
which again, you would think would be table stakes in the NFL, but often isn't that people will, will find players to fit their system rather than fit their system to their players, especially ones with unique talent. Um, I, I think that's why Andy Reid's been so mm-hmm. successful for so long. He's mm-hmm. done that really well, like Bill, Bel- like Bill Belichick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Holmes was able to sit for a year behind Alex Smith, uh, first year in the league. Rodgers famously sat for three years behind Favre. Um, Garoppolo sat behind Brady. So three of the four quarterbacks in the in the conference championships had this kind of bench time. They weren't thrown to the wolves immediately, like seems to happen all the time now. Do you do we, do we know? And do you have a position on whether that's helpful? It's hard. It's hard to parse. You know, Peyton Manning famously got thrown to the wolves and had a brutal first season. Turned out to have one of the best careers in the history of the NFL. Do you think it, how advantageous do you think it was to Mahomes, for example, to sit for a year? or for Garoppolo to, to be behind Brady and not have to face the lights straight away. Rodgers got three years. My gosh. Do you have a, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I had that debate with our friend Mike Solfino. I, I oh, think, really? You know, okay. Like Steve, Steve Young is, is kind of a, another example. He, he was terrible in the USFL, or at least he was just unremarkable. And then he went to Tampa Bay, and he was you know garbage there. Finally went to a system that took advantage of his talents, and, and he did well. Uh um, Lamar Jackson is in a system that's taking unique advantage of his talents. Um, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess I don't, I don't have a firm answer on the question other than to say that, you know, the system and the, and the player need to need to really, really link up well. And, and I guess my other hot take is that, uh, there's no such thing as a system quarterback. I mean, if, if the quarterback is any good, he's inseparable from the system he's asked to run, right? Like he's, mm. he's, he is the living embodiment of the system. He's executing the system at a high level so that they are one and the same it's it's when it's when the system is failing him or he's failing the system that that things that things go wrong and so um yeah i would say i would say i think if you put a good quarterback a talented player in the right system they don't need to wait um if the player needs to catch up with the system probably a good idea to sit him mm-hmm. um and i think that's what we saw with perhaps young um and 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 maybe maybe we saw with mahomes maybe coming into the league it, it benefited him that so sounds a little bit more about the pro game. That sounds reasonable and, and wise. It also raises the next question: is like how many quarterbacks already versus how many quarterbacks need time? And uh, you know, it's, it's I don't know. I didn't I didn't see this debate. I'd love I need to go back and see it. But it's it's hard not to feel like more quarterbacks would benefit from a little more time. Getting, well, because we sort of like you know I, I think part of it is uh, we we all agree that you have to come up with a system that really takes advantage of that quarterback's talents, and it may actually take time to develop yeah, it, that, to learn what the system is. So it's not just on the QB, system it's, on the, so it's, it's on the coach that, and the That extra season for somebody like Patrick Mahomes was maybe a learning process uh, for the, what system kind of he would would excel in. So you're saying he has to learn, but also the staff has to learn. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's and right. So, you know. Josh, while we're on this, because the, the classic example right now in the league of a staff adapting is what happened in Baltimore with, with Jackson. And then, tragically, in some eyes, they went out in the divisional round. What do you think the future holds for the Ravens, and how diagnostic was that loss in, at home uh, a week and a half ago? No, no. Let me the loss. The, the loss was uh, obviously regrettable from the Ravens' standpoint, but um, I don't know what, that you take anything drastic away from it. Um, it. Diagnostically, I think you just say, you know, in the high leverage moments, things didn't go their way. Um, and, and as a Ravens fan, a new, new Ravens fan this year, based on the way they, they, they apply, um, you know, evidence-based analysis to the game, uh, I, was, I was really disappointed that that was the outcome, especially against a, a pretty clearly inferior 
Tennessee team throughout the season. Obviously, that game in that moment, they were better. But, uh, no, I don't think there's too much you take away from that game other than, I mean, certainly you wouldn't say, well, stop going for it on, you know, fourth and two at your own 30. I mean, you know, that, that's not the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, don't throw don't throw interceptions in, in, in the lower, or excuse me, in the, within the 25-yard line and the goal line. Don't do that. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good takeaway. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, whether or not you're going to be able to project that forward into uh, in any meaningful way, I, I don't see that. When do you think we can begin um, being confident in what we understand about a quarterback? So Lamar yeah. is Lamar is younger than Joe Burrow, by the way. So the, yeah. guy, the, the, the guy is not only young in NFL reps, he's young in years. Um, when At what point do we have a handle? I mean, Josh Allen's played two years. For the Bills. Baker Mayfield's played a couple years. Baker Mayfield's played a couple years. Sam Darnold, I mean, that, that that incredible class that all those guys came out in. When do you think we actually have a handle? I mean, people are still. <laughs> you know, we're, we're just about the time we get a handle. Then we start arguing about whether they're they're old yep. and they're going. When away. is Kyler Murray going to go back to baseball? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's a great point about Burrow, and and I, I'm I'm going to just completely duck your question, Katie, because I have no idea. Um, uh, I think we're, we're getting a little bit better at building good proxies with numbers. Um, I think we're getting a little bit better at judging um, a player's intellectual ability to kind of judge uh, and, and solve problems in space. I think that there are better te- there's better testing than the Wonderlick now. Mm-hmm. But, I, don't, I mean, we're, we're clearly nowhere near uh, solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, Joe, Joe Burrow is, 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 is an incredible case here. He's, like you say, older than Lamar, 24, I think, and hasn't had but this one good season on his resume um, at an advanced age, and and it was one of the best ever uh, at, the, at the position in college football. So, I mean, how do you weight those two things? I mean, that, that, that's really interesting. I tend to think that age isn't too terribly important, and perhaps seasoning a guy and, 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 and you know, maybe, you know, his talent burbling to the top is, is a good thing, right? I mean, in terms of in terms of getting him identified by NFL teams, he perhaps wouldn't have even been drafted if right. not for him being at an advanced age and being able to showcase finally his mature talent on a football field, and then we saw what it was. Um, on the other end, maybe he turns into a pumpkin when he goes into the NFL. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, those are, they're truly, that is the range of outcomes. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I think that his college career is a little less, um, I mean, it's obviously this record-breaking college career, but it's less impressive because he's 24-year-old. And maybe I don't have any data for that, but, and that's probably true because I have certainly haven't looked at it, but in my experience... Particularly, the quarterback is a is a mental position to to some degree, and I can tell you that the students here at, at college who have taken three years off or did other things and they come back, they're very serious students, and in ways that we don't see with the twenty year olds and the nineteen year olds and the eighteen year olds. And I think he's that maturity and that intellectual development is that's a crucial that's a huge difference between a twenty four year old and a nineteen year old, so huge. And 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 that I think um, I think he's took advantage of that and and I don't think we're going to I think he's going to be a good NFL quarterback and I don't really have any basis to say otherwise but I don't think you're going to see that pop that you, you often dis- see. You want to discount a little bit because I do. it's like it's like playing with a bunch of good guys and for the by the way there are like seven guys off that team that just declared for the draft and so he was <laughs> oh god uh, see I'm not exaggerating they had seven guys I think they have seven guys who have declared thank god because Texas plays them in week 2 next year. <laughs> so they're all Josh, gone. <laughs> Josh before before you go um, just to continue this conversation a little bit, is there a quarterback or are there quarterbacks around the league that you think are a little underappreciated? We're talking about how hard it is to value them, how hard it is to understand them. 
and you spend a lot of time thinking about it. You have some great analytical ways of looking at them. Are you looking for like the next Tannehill coming out? Or well, that's something a good like that? that's a good example. Yeah. I mean, there's still arguments about Tannehill, but most would have said he couldn't do what he did this year, and maybe there's a ceiling there. But he took him a long way. Tannehill, by the way, played receiver in college at A and M. I mean, that's just absurd. So, who, who do you have? Do you have? Do you have a kind of a gleam in your eye about somebody around the NFL you think is underappreciated? Well, I mean, I think coming into next season, a guy that'll be um, uh, he'll be a buy low, if you want to call it that, would be Baker Mayfield. Mm -hmm. I I think that he's shown his ceiling in college and in his first year in the league, where he set the rookie touchdown record. Uh, He's shown his ceiling. He just you know underperformed it this past year, and I think um, you know obviously upheaval all over in Cleveland again. So all bets are off. It's really hard to say, but I do think his talent is still there, and maybe people are underappreciating him. Um, I'm super excited to see what Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray will do in his second season. He's he's also another tremendous talent. So I'll, I'll be watching both those guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You picked two Oklahoma quarterbacks, Josh. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> real helpful. Real helpful. <laughs> All right. Listen, uh, thank you, as always, especially this early in the morning. Love talking to you anytime. We will look forward. You run some great analysis on uh, the quarterbacks that are going into the draft. We'll look forward to talking to you about that in the next couple of months. Thanks, guys. That's Josh Hermsmeyer, writer at 538. Great, great follow on Twitter, at Frisco Josh, at Frisco Josh. And that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, a longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator, Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner, statistics professors here at the Wharton School. Eric Bradlow is out and about. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here. Give us a shout. one 844 That's 1-844-942-7866. Hit us up on email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or catch us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. Just off the phone with at Frisco Josh, Josh Hermsmeyer, fantastic sports analytics writer sports writer for 538 analyst josh hermsmeyer he talked about he's did he did his prop last year super bowl prop did a big piece on it 538 on how long the national anthem would go because people can bet on these things his prop this year which song is j-lo gonna open her halftime performance with Dion simpkins being the wizard and genius that he is ran us out of the last segment with a J-Lo song. It was lost on us. It was lost on the hosts up here. But Dion Simpkins was bringing it to you, the audience, because he's that good. He's on the soundboard. He's our associate producer. We've got a quarter to go here, open lines. We've talked a lot of football. We could talk, let's just do a little bit more because we got the lines here for the Super Bowl. We haven't talked about, we're going to take picks next week. But the market is Chiefs by one, one and a half. Something like that. The over-under... 54, 55, something like that. So that sounds like, what, 27, 28? That's a Josh fun game. Josh mentioned that Elo's a little bit more, or, or the, the 538's a little bit more bullish on the Chiefs than that, right? 538's a little bit more, just a little bit more bullish. 
Yeah, they, they are more bullish. It's actually interesting how it changes a little bit. It's surprising. Uh, 63, 63% is 538. And that actually, um, Josh Hernsar mentioned that at about a three and a half point advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, depending on what model you're using. So I was using about 12 and a half points of, of variance, yep. in, in standard deviation yep. in, in the final score yep. differential. That's actually more like four and a half points. Maybe they have a slightly... I wonder, um, you know, for a long time, variance was higher in Super Bowls. I don't know if it... Ha- yeah. know, we've had good games lately, but for decades, it was just awful. You would you yeah. literally might model it differently. So it's actually that's actually one of the real crucial points for modeling the Super Bowl. What do you do with that standard deviation? Are you going to mm-hmm. go higher or lower? And that really makes a big mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. Your, what was, your Massey Peabody model is two and a half 2. points? 2.3, less than two and a half. 2.3. So that turns out to be about a 56, 57 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, right, Vegas is coming out. Well, there's the, of course, there's the implied odds and then there's the, what those implied odds imply about the underlying probabilities because the implied odds have the, the 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 cut or the vig or the juice yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So if you just make a, a bet on the on the Chiefs, they're giving you a cost you 120 to win 100, mm-hmm. and that's giving them about a 55 percent chance. Okay, and the market um, the line the spread of course is one one and a half something like that. So it, so by, that actually would suggest that the public believes it's closer than, than the, the, modelers the, the, the sharps. So yeah. do you guys just be, being, being fans and having watched these things, are you surprised at all by the lines? Especially given what San Francisco did to Green Bay, the dominance that they've shown. They've looked so good. They've got guys back from injury. Are you surprised that these models are producing a little bit more advantage towards the Chiefs? I guess not just because the Chiefs have looked kind of, I, I guess, equally impressive. Or, or well, specifically, start, Patrick right? Mahomes has looked just yeah. so impressive that, yeah, I mean, we, I kind of, I guess I argued a little bit with Josh about this during our segment that, you know, if you kind of just went, you know, if, if, if you really believe in, like, the line play or something like that, that that's the key to winning a championship, then that would argue for San Francisco. But I, I guess it's just so ingrained in me uh, that the quarterback is kind of the – the tiebreaker or whatever yeah, you want to call think, it. It, it, it it's it's sort of like josh made a, a compelling argument that it's going to probably come down to like you know casey doing enough to kind of make san francisco actually pass occasionally instead of just running it like down their throats the entire game and once it turns into kind of a passing battle then casey does have an advantage I think this is actually makes it very transparent the difference between the modern anal- analysts like Josh Armeyer, like like Massey Peabody, like the the Twitter analyst public in football, which says quarterbacks matter, passing is better, and all those structures that are and, and statistical models are built to support that, and that leads you to sixty three percent KC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that the public doesn't see it that way; sees the record. That's important. Sees the the devastation that San Francisco wrought on the field last week. They don't penalize them and say, oh, Garoppolo, what is he? QBR rating is like average. He's average. He barely throws. Average, average. Mahomes, the greatest thing going. I think that's the differential. I, I really think that the models, the Sharps, are seeing a, a great quarterback in a, in, a, in a passing system and just values that better. You know, it's, it, it is amazing going back. What year was it that the Ravens won the Super Bowl with Trent Dilfer as yeah. quarterback? Behind, behind one like of the that. strongest yeah. defenses that you could have. But I wonder... Marvin Lewis, I, I was actually reminded today, Marvin Lewis was the defensive coordinator for that team. Is that true? Yeah. Wow, geez, no kidding. Yeah. 
That was so it preceded his long run as Bengals mm-hmm. coach. Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah. this would be, we would, we as analysts should be rooting for a KC destruction. I mean, they should they should win. <laughs> oh, big. just because it would be like, yeah. Uh, well, be no, like, it's, not, yeah. it's not win. Oh, come on. Well, Even the analysts are saying it's going to be a well, three-point no, game. Well, no, we're trying yeah. to help us, sir. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I, I wonder if, if one team has an advantage because of the two-week prep. Mm-hmm. Does it favor one over the other? So, you know, all these, both these teams had buys. They had two weeks before their divisional round, but they didn't know who they were going to play until the week before. Yeah. They've got two weeks to scheme if they want to. Is one of these offenses, well, if, if you consider it, really it's against, it's about the Niner defense against the Casey offense. Does one of those sides have an, more of an advantage because of the extra lead time in prep? That's a great question. I don't think I, 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 I know. You I mean, both, both teams are obviously kind of famous for their scheming at least on the offensive side of things right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i would sort of say that like you know again san francisco's defense having two weeks to kind of study mahomes you know that's probably going to confer some advantage to them um but i don't know i don't i, I, don't, <laughs> I don't i don't i don't know if i don't know if you can kind of i don't know if you can deal with Mahomes. i i guess i i'm not sure mahomes is something that you can kind of I worry, I'm, not, I'm not confident they can come up with a scheme that contains him in I, any way. I worry that we are too sure of that. that, yeah. we, that you no, know, I mean, kind of we fade, were, we were of, too sure yeah. of uh, Lamar Alexander. I mean, oh, Lamar Jackson. Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a, Why is he retiring? He was such a great senator. <laughs> <laughs> Just when we need him. I know. Damn it, I'm so sure. The butt of many no, jokes coming no. forward. No, no. but I, That I, wasn't I, me. That was Eric. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I mean, I guess it's sort of, you know... Uh, um, I, I guess Patrick Mahomes has shown me over the course of this season and certainly this playoff run that I kind of feel like he's one of these quarterbacks that kind of is is beyond you know he's will, great. will excel in any scenario basically. Yep. Um, but but I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And I mean, again, when by wrong, I I could, I could easily see San Francisco by wrong, leaking out a close wrong. yeah <laughs> victory. I mean, you know, it it, it sort of yeah well, it, it could easily happen. Where, where I mean, you, I mean, we're, I, I, I'll, I'll kind of go back to like the, the the Super Bowl essentially after that Ravens one that you just brought up, but the first Patriots Super Bowl where they went in against uh, uh, St. Louis. Nobody thought St. Louis was be there'd be any chance that that could be stopped by defense, right? The the, the greatest show, greatest show on turf, and and they found a way of kind of yeah. you know at least quote unquote containing and just sort of shortening the game through running. And that that's essentially going to be San Francisco's yeah. strategy. Whether they can execute and are successful, who? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So uh, let's talk. We've got some over unders, and they'll come. We'll, they'll bring us back to football here at the end of the segment. But let's kind of cast around a little bit. Is there anything else in sports that has your attention right now? The this isn't something I'm paying a lot of attention because it's early in the tournament. But the Australian Open is going on. And I think we're in the end of the first week now. I'm and, curious and about the stars are still dominating. Well, I'm curious about Osaka I'm on the woman's side. Yeah. You know, she had this great run season before this, and then she's really struggled. And she seemed like she was going to be the next emerging star. And so it's a good. That's one good story to keep yeah. an eye on down there. And she's advanced so far. I think the 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 young player Coco is playing Osaka. I think one of the next matches right. on the women's side. Is Things Coco are more interesting Osaka. on the women's side than the men. It's still the big three. And okay theme coming along maybe but it's it's just how many years of this can we take <laughs> you're worn out you've had all well, you can take i mean i'm not it's not that it's not that it's bad it's just that it's just i mean repetitive mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what about in the nba have you guys have, have you seen a team that has your attention at all the, you know it's i'm just sort of lost in the nba because this season is just so 
so long and uninformative. Yeah, hold yeah, on, and, hold and, on. And You're the baseball guy calling basketball season long and uninformative? Yeah, because oh we God. know who the stars are that right away, right? So in baseball, you don't know that. It takes a long time before that emerges. <laughs> and in baseball, you have wonderful individual performances that you can watch, and you just don't have that in basketball. Well, you do have you that. You don't have wonderful you, yeah, yeah, No, it's sort of you records and statistics. They don't pile up. Come on, this is an analytics show. You you, you can't evaluate it. You oh, come it. on. You can have somebody like Russell Westbrook doing some amazing statistical yeah, things. That's great. In, in the, it's in the great athletics, but, you know. but Okay, all right. Well, anyway. but the, I, I, now, I, I, Come on. We know that the basketball season is the longest relative. We Absolutely, this is certainly the case that the basketball season is way too long relative to determining which teams are the best. Okay, this is true. This is a. He finally said something true. Shane. That's, that's, that's that, no. That is true. You and, haven't uh, had a, such a run of nonsensical things probably since we started this show. You're the oh sensible one. You're supposed to be the sensible <laughs> one, Adi. Especially right. if you include Lamar Alexander. In there. <laughs> um, well, I, I will. Uh, so I, I've been kind of thinking a little bit about um, one thing that kind of fascinates me about basketball that is in fact predictable. That is kind of a narrative. Is how can the Knicks? Have stay so bad <laughs> for so long, for so long, like decades of time. And this is like the number one of the number one. There's an top answer. three markets in the United There's States. An answer and is it just the owner? Yeah, it's ownership. It's this ownership. Is, this is why this they're like exhibit A. So, so well, well, right. And I mean, we certainly see this in the NFL as well. With like maybe the Rochester Redskins would be a great example for sure. Um, so if you're a Knicks fan, what no. what what hope do you have? You 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 file an appeal for a change of loyalty, okay. and, and there should be a one time exemption. Everyone should yeah. get one. That no one's going to criticize you. They're not going to make fun of you. If you're if you're born into can you take that can you take that mulligan on fandom yourself or do we have to agree as a society that well, well, okay well, no the Knicks what are you, you proposing, are you proposing that lifelong Knicks fans we're allowed yeah. you're allowed, allowed to, jump. to switch if, the if, Nets if, if, if a team, or any team outside if, of the market if, if a team is bad for decades. <laughs> And, and it shows absolutely no hope the, the, because of ownership. It's the no hope. It's the no hope part. The, the, the service. Are to, you allowed to switch allegiances? The service to the yeah. world comes from the no yeah. hope part. It's not fair that yeah. these guys, these poor Redskins fans, these poor Knicks fans, are condemned yeah. to a lifetime of no hope, and they are because owners matter that much. It's just absurd. So they ought to be free. We ought to free them. Yeah. We should have a clearinghouse where they file a petition. And we can review so, the petition. It's no like, longer it, an it, it, show. It, it can only be one. No, we're making up these rules to go on. It can this only is, be one. This there's is, only this one is unbelievable. team per sport. Currently, it's the Redskins in football. It's the Knicks in basketball. It's, uh, what is I don't it know. In baseball? It, well, I mean, it's probably the Marlins owned by this new Hall of Famer, Derek right. Jeter. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean that that the that, that, have, that have that's kind well of that, 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 that's, that's a dumb one though because they didn't have fans to start with. So right, I mean, right. It's not it like probably, you could. I, I mean, I who, think, who would jump ship from that team? I think it could be that who's on that ship. There are eras where some some sports may not have such a team. It has yeah. to be the analytics component of this, Adi, is that the probability of hope needs to hit zero yeah. essentially, and then in the ten year horizon, fifteen year horizon when hope hits zero people ought to be given it out and so if we can make that contribution i think we and nicks yeah. nicks and redskins i mean those are the answers right there i mean those people need to be freed 
if we could figure out somebody. To do I it, like you taking great. it kind of in a more analytics direction. Yeah, we can come. All up right. With it. Yeah. Come I don't know. I just want to know why there's no hope for the Knicks, and what's the why is there no just because they owner, haven't done anything owner, for years? Owner, because ownerships. This is the lesson: is that owners matter that much. That we yeah. the, the 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 more you learn about this is one of the first things I learned that I started working for teams in the NFL is like my gosh, there's differences in quality of ownership. When you're watching the game, you see differences in quarterbacks. You might see differences to a lesser degree. In coaches, what you don't see is the differences in general managers and the differences in ownership, and it really flows. You get these guys who have the teams, are going to have the team for a long time, and they make a big difference in what happens. Yeah, and I, on the I field. think we make assumptions. Oh, this person's in charge of this multi-billion-dollar corporation. They must know what they're doing. Yeah, right. No, and it's it's just not the case not the necessarily. Case. I, I, I always thought it was co- common that the owners would let the team get run by someone well, who this, knows the business. Well, why, why I think it, that's that. Why, I, I think good ownership does do that. They hire the right people, and they have kind of a way. You know, they they're able to kind of stay hands off in an, in a in a in a good kind of way, but. Well, let's let's Not begin with let's begin with this is hard to do. Yeah, I mean it's a hard thing to do. Be good at these sports. These guys are these guys are the top of their game. They paid a ton of money. The incentives are really strong. There's a lot of uncertainty. It's hard to do. We all think we could do better, and maybe, maybe not. It is a hard thing to do. But these owners, they've been successful in some other field where they've built up some money, allowed them to buy a team, and now they're asked to do something very different. You know, you're successful in sales, or you're successful in oil, or you inherit the money, and you think you're successful, and then you buy a team, and you think, well, I was successful over here. I can run this team. That's a very different world. Yeah. It doesn't usually translate. And you've got to provide You've got to provide a structure, and you have to re- reinforce the right actions. You have to develop processes. These aren't things that people are generally good at. These are hard things to be good at. And if you've done things, especially if you've done things kind of on your own, an entrepreneurial way, you may not have had any experience with that. And you've got to provide that structure, put the right people in there, and then give them some space. By the way, putting the right people in there, that's hard. How do you find yeah. the right general manager? That is a hard decision. The general manager then has to get lucky and get the right coach. That's a hard thing to do. It's all hard. And the only way you're successful, other than getting lucky, is that you do the right thing, you run the right process for years, and you accumulate little edges, and you get enough chances, and eventually the, the thing pops in your favor. And then people aren't inclined to run organizations that way. Moreover, there's all this pressure from the outside. This is another reason it's so hard to do. You have to withstand the ups and downs of the fans and the media and the criticism. I mean, that's that's really hard thing to do. It's, a, it, yeah. it's an exception if it can be done well. Yeah. So the Celtics are they caught my eye this week because they 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 routed the Lakers. One of mm-hmm. the biggest, you know, this is one of the storied rivalries in the yeah. NBA. We grew up watching the great finals back in the eighties, and they beat the they beat the Lakers by thirty seven. Was Anthony Davis like playing? I don't think he was. May not have been. No. They shouldn't be beating by winning no, by thirty that, points. That it's still, you know, there's there, there's no reason for that. It's just encouraging um, to me that this yeah. East-West thing might be a little more interesting this year than it has been. Of course, we've had to, we've no, no. I mean, it, I, I, I think we're all kind of ready um, uh, for sort of like you know something. You know, I mean, it, that uh, we, 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 that you know, the conferences are somewhat evenly matched, and that we're not sort of talking about. I, I think for a while there, when it was, you know, so West dominated. And we were talking about the kind of semifinals like they were the final, the real finals. For sure. That's a little bit, I think, just kind of dissatisfying. So it's nice to kind of have the finals be something where you, you don't know what's going to happen ahead of time. Well, let me just point out there's a unbelievable discrepancy between the Vegas odds and the 538 probability model for the NBA championship. Namely, our own Philadelphia 76ers are given a very remote probability of winning the championship by the by the lines 
They're yeah. 2,000 to, to uh, 2,000, not 2,000 yeah. to 1, 2,000 to 100. That's, and if you can count for the, for the juice, that's saying 1 to 2% is their probability. Yet 538 hasn't been 18%. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think maybe that's a, it, that's a huge discrepancy. Why? Why would there be such a discrepancy? I mean, I'm looking at those so Vegas example, lines, and I'm th- thinking that Vegas still thinks the uh, the West is dominant. Well, I don't know. See, take Celtics as a as a comparable. So both the Celtics and the Sixers are 2001. Yeah, but 538 has the Celtics where the line where the market would have them about three percent, maybe maybe a little high, but in the same ballpark. While the while five thirty eight has the Sixers at, at eighteen, I mean, and you have to remember lines are proportional. That's how you your, your return on your investment. You don't mm-hmm. ever see things like that. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. One of the things that we know about five thirty eight model is that they they know that the playoffs are so different from the regular season yep. that they have to they have to make structural changes to their model for getting the playoff performance. And it could be that they're doing a better job of that. I don't know. The so people we're certainly are looking, doing a different job. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys, we're down to just a few minutes. We want to pick up a few over unders before we end up the segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. So let's just run through these real quick, getting these kind of real time from the guys back there. Zach Drapkin helping us out, as usual. Matty D helping us out. So uh, how about a, a number of games that Brady will play for the Pats next year? Oh, that's a good one. We're going to set this one at .5. We're going to set this one at .5. What do you think, especially our in-house Patriots fan, Shane Jensen? I'm taking the over because I don't want to live in a world where the under is true. <laughs> I'm taking the over. I, th- I, I think he signs with the Patriots and plays another season or that two. That world's coming, Shane. Oh, this no, I know. This year. I know, I know. But, I mean, imagine him on another team. I can't do it. All right, I, well, I won't do it. I'll, I will uh, agree with, with yeah. Shane. I have no basis to know other than the fact that why would Brady want to leave New England even for – a minute. It's unlikely he'll be able to make a move to even a, a, a lab, you know, kind of a equivalent situation. It would be so much fun. I would love to see. We need to see Brady and Belichick perform separately <laughs> from one another, just for the analytics, if nothing else. All right, let's go. Uh, let's stay with the AFC. Ravens wins next season. Ravens wins next season. Over under eleven point five. Over. I'll take the over. Oh, you're I jumping in again. I was. Oh, gonna, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry. No, no, I was going to do. I was going to ask yeah. Kate to go first. On yeah, this that's one. a good idea. They had, sorry. they had 14 this year, including 12 yeah. straight, and uh, that's quite a bit over 11.5. I'm going to go with Josh's optimism. We asked him whether there was much signal in that playoff loss, and I'm going to go no. I think this, they're still learning how to use Lamar. They're still growing as a staff. He's still growing as a player. So I'll take over 11 and a half also. Ooh. I, like I said, I'll, I'll just go. You I defer in to me. All right, I'm actually gonna. I, I wish I. It's very hard to imagine predicting twelve a team at the beginning of the season to win twelve. So I, I agree. Go under. I agree. I think the base rates would suggest. I'm going wise. base rates, and I'm going yeah, under. Good, good, All good. right, I'm, I'm going to stick with my over. All right, let's do one more football Super Bowl this year's Super Bowl MVP for Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City quarterback. Obviously, the over under here is point five. Will Mahomes win the MVP? Yeah, I'm taking the over. It's going to happen. He's going to light him up. Yeah, I'm going with. I'm agreeing. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. go make it three out of three here. I mean, again, we're not going base rates here exactly, are we? Because, well, yeah. we should look at the historical. No, if we, we want to look NBA. at her historical performances by sport, I'm terrible at NBA, at, at, at NFL. My, my my historical record at over-unders so just in the go, NFL so just is go base, awful. So go, go against base, me and as you're going to As I remembered, win. I'm amazing so. across the board, but I... <laughs> Not Shane did win 2019. <laughs> yeah. Adi, um, then you would go base rates, and you would want to know something like how often does the, the quarterback. quarterback win, and it's going to be more than half. Way more. But now you got to say that times the probability that Kansas City is the winning team. Yeah, that's right. 
And so I don't know which way this shakes out. So it, it doesn't sh- shake out well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're, you're going to go against. You're going to go yep. against. All right, we're going to close with a basketball one. Zion Williamson, Duke first-year player for the Pelicans. He's going to make his pro debut tonight, 12.5 on his points in the game. Over. I'm going to take the over. I over. Think he, uh, over. Yeah, I think he's going to be shooting. They're, they're going to let him kind they're of shoot for the moon. No, yeah. Well, they, Pel, the Pels need him to. That's, like, That's they exactly need to right. Come. They need uh, anything. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Good. All right. So Zion Williamson oh, debuting tonight. Should be fun. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it live every Wednesday morning. Appreciate you being here. Many thanks to Matty D, Deion Simpkin, Zach Drapkin. We'll be back next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.